Good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Ephesians. We're continuing our new series in Ephesians, just getting started really here and, and still in chapter one. It's called A New Identity. And if you want to grab one of the Bibles that are under the chairs, we'll be on page 976. If you don't have a Bible, want to follow along there. And if you don't have one at home, you're, you're welcome to keep those as well. We have a few more boxes in the closet. So um, Ephesians chapter one. I said last week that Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 are really one long run-on sentence in the Greek. And so for our own sanity, we're going to just try to kind of carve it up into bits here so we can make a little more sense of it. And what we see is we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to give us the new identity. Uh, Last week, we looked at the Father's love for us, his adopting love, his, uh, his gracious, you know, it said to the praise of his glorious grace, the way that he chooses us and loves us and makes us his own. And this week, we're going to look at the love that is shown to us through the Son, how we are loved in the Son. And what we're going to see again and again in the book of Ephesians is that we can't can't manufacture an identity of our own. You know, we we think I'm I'm somebody because of uh, what I've achieved or what I can do or my personality or how I look, uh, maybe what neighborhood I grew up in. Again and again, the scriptures will tell us we are are fallen in the identity that we're, we're born with but that God graciously gives us a new identity. He makes us his own. He adopts us into his family and into his love. And so we'll continue that theme this week. I'm going to read verses 7 through 10 to kind of focus in here on this idea of of being loved in, in the Son, looking at what Jesus has done in cooperation with the Father and the Spirit. It says in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Throughout Ephesians uh, especially, but also in the whole New Testament, there's this theme that our identity, that our new life is found in him. And that's what we're going to really zero in on today, that we have life, we have an identity, we have our adoption in him, in Christ, and what he's accomplished for us. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you do love us, and we gather here in hope. Um, God, we're looking for good news. We need you. We pray that you would remake us, that you would renew us, that you would help us to walk in faithfulness with you. God, help us to, to trust in the great love that you have for us. Help us to understand your word to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several years ago, uh, I guess about 20 years ago, I was a college kid, and I was helping a friend out with a golf tournament. So uh, this older guy that was a golf pro was doing a big golf tournament, and he needed some, some guys just to kind of fill in that day, you know, move stuff around, do some grunt work. And so me and a couple of buddies went to help him out. Now, I'd never played golf before. Actually, to this day, I've only played once. So I don't really understand a lot about how it works, but I mean, I get the basics, right? You've got this really hard ball and you hit it with a, a stick, right? So it's a pretty, pretty cool sport just because of that. But I didn't really understand the details of, you know, how everything worked. And so we had this one area where they were warming up, right? So they're hitting the balls um, out into this field and they had these buckets of balls that they start with, right? So they pull the ball out of the bucket, they hit it, they pull another ball out, they hit it. 
And uh, what, you needed, what he needed me to do is he needed me to go gather up the balls to put them back in the buckets to bring them back to the guys, right? Which sounds simple enough. So he starts explaining this to me, and I'm saying, okay, well, so when do they finish warming up? Like, what time will that be? And he said, well, no, you'll, you'll get the balls while they're still hitting them. And, and I'm thinking, I mean, I'm not real smart, and I don't understand golf, but I think that would kill me, right? <laughs> and if I'm walking out there while they're just whacking at the balls, you know, there's like eight people in a line just nailing balls at me. I don't think I'm going to survive that. Uh, and he assured me, you know what, that there was a, a safe way that I could do it. He actually had this little machine, which is really cool. I wish I could drive the machine again, but it was like this little cart with a cage on it. So you would drive in this little caged cart out there to pick up the balls, and they would, you know, they would be kind of like a tractor. It would gather up the balls, and then it would drop them into a bucket, and then you'd put them in the bucket to deliver them back to the guys. So what I recognized that, that on my own, I couldn't accomplish what he was calling me to do, right? If I had walked out there in my own strength, I mean, I was a lot healthier then than I, than I am now, you know, 19, but but still, I, I would have just died, right? I mean, I would just get nailed with a thousand golf balls and just collapsed in a heap. But I could do it in the cart, right? If I was in the cart, I would be safe. I could carry out the calling that he had called me to. I could accomplish the task that he had called me to accomplish. And I think in the scriptures, we see a very similar concept. We see that we can't on our own accomplish all that God has in store for us. But again and again, it's repeated over and over again, especially in this in this section right here, in him, in him, in him, in him we will be safe. He, he is our, our ark, you know? Think of Noah's ark. He is, he is our cage. He is our righteousness. We are, we are clothed in his perfection. We are saved in him. He is our champion. Have you ever, have you ever been on a team that, that lost and lost and lost? Maybe you're in grade school and they're picking teams and you're thinking, this guy always wins. I want to be on his team. That, that's who Jesus is. We, we can, he can be our champion. We can accomplish what God calls us to accomplish in him. He's the one that goes before us. He's the one that can do the things that we can't do. So we're only safe in him, and that's what's going to be repeated again and again in this section. And so the love that the Father has shown to us, this adoption, this making us his child, all of this is executed by what Jesus has actually accomplished for us. And the first thing that we see is that Jesus has liberated us, that, that there's a bondage, there's a problem, there's a reason we can't do what God calls us to do. There's a, there's a bondage we're in that prevents us from, from honoring God. There's this bondage I have that, that keeps me from, from really loving people unselfishly, that, that keeps me from really wanting to honor, other, honor others more than myself. And, and the Bible calls this sin, it calls it selfishness. Uh, so the first section, I think, what I want to kind of unpack for us is how we're liberated in the Son. Um, we're liberated in Jesus and what he's done for us. We're now free. We were kind of caged up before, the scriptures say. Um, in verse 7, it says it this way. Look at verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In him, we have redemption through his blood. That word a redemption, it's apolutrosis, it's literally would, would mean the price uh, to set you free. Uh, and it's also sometimes translated, uh, or a variant of this word is ransom. And so when we hear the word ransom, we often think of um, like money paid to a kidnapper, right? So a lot of times we associate it with something maybe, maybe it's questionable. I don't know if we should pay the kidnapper. I don't know if we should pay the, the terrorist a ransom, right? But in the New Testament in the first century, it had just this general concept of the price to, to set something free. 
Um, and, you know, you see that uh, really more in the 50s and 60s. We don't use the, the term as often now redemption, but, but that word for redeem, right, is something you might redeem a coupon or redeem a certificate for something, right? It's this idea of you, you get something out of it. You, you have something set free when redemption happens. And, and this is great, but probably a lot of us are thinking, well, I, I don't need to be redeemed, right? I, I'm not in trouble. I'm not in bondage. If you were an Israelite and you were reading this, the first thing you would think of is the way the word redemption was used in the Old Testament. You would have thought of a slavery that the, that the Israelites were in in Egypt. Uh, the Israelites were slaves and God redeemed them and set them free and made them free people and then tried to teach them to live as free people. And that concept of the exodus, of the redemption out of slavery in the Old Testament is really the principal figure in the New Testament. So You've got the redemption of the Israelites being brought out of slavery in the Old Testament. And then what the New Testament does is says, that, that's what Jesus did for us through the cross. That's, that's what he accomplished for us. I have a picture here, an old, uh, this is a, I think it's 15th century BC. It's a slave master beating a slave. And there's another slave uh, begging for mercy in, in an Egyptian context. And so th- this is what the Israelite would have thought of. This is what a Jew would have thought of in the first century, reading what Paul is saying. Yeah, bondage. God, God's the God that, that took us out of slavery. He set us free. But the New Testament takes it even farther than that um, because, again, a lot of us might think, well, I'm, I'm not in bondage, right? I, I'm an American. I'm, I'm free. I can, I can do what I want. But the New Testament makes it really clear that we are in bondage to our sin. We're in bondage to our own selfishness. It's, it's not just a physical bondage. Economically, physically, we may not be slaves, but spiritually, we're slaves. Spiritually, we're in bondage. Spiritually, we need liberation. We cannot live up to everything that God calls us to be apart from the freedom, the liberation that we're given through Jesus and what he's accomplished. And so when Paul says that we have this redemption through what Jesus has accomplished, first of all, he says it's through his what? His blood. So his blood is uh, this kind of catchphrase, right, for everything Jesus accomplished through the cross. He died for us. We would say Jesus gave himself for us. He died on the cross as a willing sacrifice, as a perfect sacrifice, an innocent sacrifice. He took our place. So he paid the price for our freedom. Uh, We were in bondage to sin and in bondage to death, and Jesus took our place as a substitute. It says we have redemption through his blood. And then we have a parallel statement. This is paralleled with the forgiveness of our trespasses. Again, a lot of us think of ourselves as, hey, I'm not that bad, right? I'm a pretty good person. You ask people if they're going to heaven, one of the most common answers you get is, uh, I hope so, or probably. Then you ask people why, and they say, well, I'm, I'm a good person, right? And well, what does that mean? Well, I've never murdered anybody. So um, it's more complicated than that, I think, in, in the New Testament. I mean, in the New Testament, it says, well, we're, we're imperfect. In Romans 3.23, it says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I'm, I'm, glad, I'm happy for those of you that have never murdered anybody, but there's, there's more to it than that, right? There, there is more to it than that. God calls us to be absolutely perfect. God calls us to love each other all the time. And I don't know about you, but I, I, don't, I don't measure up to that. I'm in bondage to my own sin and selfishness, and I need someone to come and set me free to open up the cage and, and let me out. And what Paul is saying is that that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. When the God of the universe came and was born as a man and lived a perfect life and showed us this is what life is supposed to be like and then died 
in our place. The New Testament tells us that, that that's what unlocks the key of our hearts. That's what allows us out of this cage of bondage. That's what liberates us. That's what sets us free. So we are forgiven for our trespasses. We've sinned. There's two words that are usually used in the New Testament, sin and trespasses, two different Greek words. And sin is, is more like the kind of missing the mark, more like the Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? We haven't measured up to the perfection. So the word sin has the connotation in first century context of like you're shooting an arrow and you don't quite make the bullseye, right? Which we like that one a little better, I think, that, you know, okay, I can accept that. I've, I'm pretty good, but I missed the mark, right? And that's really more of what sin means. Um, but the word trespass, it's, it's kind of a harder word, right? I mean, trespass is, is like what you would think it means today. No trespassing. You see a sign that says, don't go here. And you're like, well, I'll go there anyway, right? I'm going to do it anyway. And the scripture says that's, that's really the condition of our heart. We, we know what's right, and we choose not to do what's right. We've been told, don't go here, and, and we go there anyway because of our sin, because of our selfishness. And then we cover it up with different ways, right? We wear different masks. We create identities. You might create the identity of, I'm free and I don't care, and nobody's going to tell me what to do, right? So you've kind of got the, maybe you've got the freedom, hipster, I don't believe in God and I don't believe in the law kind of identity. So we kind of cover up our shame with that. Or you may have the religious identity of, well, I do all these other good things, and I go to this church, and I give this money, and I do, do this, and I'm... I'm good in these ways to make up for that badness that I'm not wanting anybody to see. The New Testament says that that neither one of those ways of covering our trespasses really works. That only what Jesus has accomplished will set us free. Only what Jesus has done will unlock, will, will break the power of that sin in our life. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. So we've been set free. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace word that we saw a lot last week, the, to the praise of God's glorious grace. Grace is this concept of God giving us something we don't deserve. We've trespassed. We've done what we shouldn't have done, and God shows kindness to us, and that's the hope that we have in the gospel. So for, for us to apply this, for us to do something with this, we have to take the step of recognizing that we're in bondage before we can be liberated. We have to accept that we have a problem, that there's something wrong. Uh, and we're not always very good at doing that, but that's the most important step. I want to encourage you, I want to plead with you this morning to recognize that there's, there is something wrong. Uh, that no matter what culture we live in, no matter where we are, no matter what religion we practice, nobody lives up to their own standards. Uh, the way Francis Schaeffer put it is, is if you would just carry a tape recorder around with you and record every law and moral statement you've ever made, and then God judged you by that, would you measure up? And the answer is, there's no way. If he only measured you by your own moral maxims, by your own statements of this is who she, people should be and this is how people should live, we wouldn't even measure up to that, much less the objective standards of a holy God that says, this is what I expect from you. But we have freedom. We have liberation in Christ and what he's accomplished. So my, my, my pleading, my, my asking of you this morning is to recognize that there is a problem. Recognize that there's something wrong, that there's something bent in our soul, and we need God from the outside to fix it. We need him to do something. And the way it's explained in the New Testament, the good news is that it's fixed because of what Jesus did. He took your sin upon himself. He gives you his righteousness. It's a substitution that's made by Christ's work on the cross. The next thing I want us to understand is that we're educated in the Son. And I really struggled with the right words for this. 
There's all this, there's this kind of piling on of these words that, that talk about wisdom, knowledge, insight, uh, revealed. You have all these words piled up here just in verse, uh, verses 8 and 9. What they're saying is that we're, we're taught. These things are revealed to us. We're informed. We're, we're educated. We, we learn through the Son. Let me read it in verse 8 and 9. It says, end of verse 7, according to the riches of His grace. And then verse 8, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. This idea that, that we're, we're missing some stuff, right? We, we don't know what we need to know, but he educates us. He brings us up to speed and, and not just kind of tells us, you know, here's one thing that'll help you out. He, he lavishes it on us, right? He fully educates us. He gives us all wisdom and all insight. He reveals the mystery to us. Have you ever had the feeling of, of being on the outside, like, like you walk up to somebody and they're, they're laughing about an inside joke and you're, you're like, you just feel like, I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. I'm, I'm an outsider. Have you ever had that feeling before? I've had, I've had that feeling before, a few times. Um, it's, a, it's a frustrating feeling, right? You, you feel kind of cut off and you feel like, I don't really know. I'm not, I'm not a part of this inner circle. I wish I, could, I wish I could be a part of what's going on here, but I'm not really. I'm kind of on the outs here. And I believe that the, the gospel is the ultimate bringing in to the inner circle. Uh, no matter how many times you've felt like you're on the outside, the, the gospel is now an invitation into that inner circle. It's into that inner room with the king of the universe, with the God of all creation. He's inviting you in. I have a picture here from the, I guess this is the 20s, back when, during Prohibition, they had the speakeasy bars. Have y'all ever heard about this? If you studied history, they would have these uh, speakeasies where it would be a, a secret bar because it was illegal to have alcohol, and so they would have, you know, all the windows boarded up and all the doors closed, and there would be like a little peephole where they would slide open, and you would have to say the password, right? You had to know the secret password to then be let in. You had to know someone or know someone that knew someone to get into the inner circle to make it in to the party. And sometimes we feel like I'm, I'm on the outside and I don't, I don't know the password. What was interesting is, you know, Paul's writing this in the first century in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, one of the most common religious practices were what are called mystery cults. So we have this word mystery here in verse 9. Paul says the mystery is revealed. You've been educated now. You've been shown. You've been given the knowledge. The mystery is revealed. You have all the wisdom and all the insight that you need. And Paul is speaking this in the context of the first century where there are all these, these cults that were based on secret societies and secret passwords and special information. So one of their, one of their most common religious practices in the first century was building these little clubs where they had their secret handshakes and they had their secret passwords. And that gave you some sense of belonging and some sense of maybe I can have some victory if I get in this club and they have the right information and maybe then I can learn to overcome my my problems and you felt like you were an insider because you were a part of that gang but other people that would try to come in they they weren't allowed in because they hadn't been initiated they didn't know the right information they didn't have the secret knowledge they didn't have the mysteries what's fascinating about the way Paul uses this word mystery in the New Testament is he takes that common word in the first century mystery secret knowledge that's that's really used to keep people out it's a word of exclusivism. It's a word of elitism, right? I'm, I'm better than you because I know the mystery, but you don't know the mystery, and, and you have to be on the outside. That's the way the word was used in the, 
in the first century. Paul takes it and he just blows it up. He just turns the whole thing inside out. And he says, in Jesus, the mystery is revealed. It's just, it's opened up to you and you can come in. And you're invited in to the party. So you're not the person, you know, knocking on the door saying, I don't know the password, but I want to be in the party. Jesus, Jesus is the password. You're invited into the party. As a matter of fact, Jesus over and over again in the New Testament says that the kingdom of heaven is like a big party. So it's like this wedding banquet. It's like this huge party and everybody's invited in, insiders and outsiders. And so this morning, what I, I want you to hear is if, if you're one of those people that has, has struggled with feeling I'm, I'm on the outside and I'm working and I'm trying to get uh, more knowledge and I'm trying to grow in wisdom and I'm trying to figure out the right things to know and trying to fix this and trying to fix that so I can break in and be in that place where everything's okay, he, he says, all you need is Jesus. If you know Jesus, if you trust in him, he is the password, and you're invited into the ultimate inner circle. I mean, you're invited into the inner circle with, with the God of the universe, the, the heavenly Father who puts his arm around you and says, you're with me. And that, that gives us then a reckless abandon, a fearlessness in life where we can, we can walk up to, to any other circle. We can walk into any other culture and feel free because we're accepted into the only culture, the only inner circle that really matters. We're we're now one with the God of the universe by the work of his son, Jesus. So he's now given us all the education that we need. He's given us all the wisdom that we need. He's revealed the mysteries to us. There's no more to know. He's saying it's, it's not that complicated. It's all just dumped out on the table for you in Jesus. All the, the, what do I need to do and how do I need to fix this and how do I need to improve that and all, all of that is unpacked in Christ. As you understand the God of the universe came and became a man and gave his life for you and lived in your place and gave himself to take away your sin, he invites you into the inner circle. He invites you to, to reconciliation, to, to restoration through Christ and what he's accomplished for you. So you don't have to, you don't have to feel like you're on the outside anymore. And, and just overcoming that feeling of, I'm on the outside, um, unlocks us. It, it unlocks us so that we can begin to then learn what we need to learn. That's the beginning. It says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we really get a hold of him, then everything else falls into place. Then we can actually begin changing. Then we can actually begin uh, living in a new way, not being bound anymore by our old uh, obsessions, by our, our old addictions, begin, begin putting those things aside. And that's what we'll talk about in the rest of the book of Ephesians. We begin to live the new life, put off the old man, and put on the new man because of what he's accomplished for us, because he's invited us in, because he loves us and shows us his grace, <clears throat> his grace in Jesus Christ. It says, he lavished it upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. His will to invite you into his family. That, that's his plan for you, to be a part of his family, to be loved by him. That's his will, that's his desire for you. He's inviting you in to the party, and he set this forth in Christ. The last thing I want us to kind of dig into is the idea of fulfillment that we have in the Son. And this one's, th- these are all kind of abstract concepts. This one I think is the most abstract. Uh, look at verse, um, the end of verse 9 and, and then 10. Let's read all of 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So his purpose is set forth in Christ. Different translations break this up differently because it 
basically just says in him, in him, in him, in him, in him, and then it says in Christ one place. And so they, some of the translators will, will move that around to, to help you track with it a little better because it's such a long run-on sentence in Greek. But basically, again and again, he's saying in Christ, in him, in what the Son has accomplished for you, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This, this word is fascinating here, this one that says uh, to unite all things in him. It's, it's a word that it kind of is like headline. It, it's, it's used most commonly with arguments in their day. So it, it's a, a compound word that has the word head in it. So it's like the idea of summing things up under one heading is kind of what it means. So it'd be like the, the headline or maybe even the bottom line of an argument. So if you have a bunch of arguments and you're a lawyer making a case, your bottom line, bang, this is it. And he's saying, that's Jesus. He, he's the bottom line for the whole universe. He, he's, the, he's the argument that sums up everything else. He's the fulfillment of all of that. Uh, this other word, plan, is, a, is an interesting word too. If you study theology at all, there's like different schools of theology. Some, there's one that's called dispensational theology, and they get the word from right here, this, this word plan is dispensation, or sometimes it's translated administration. And so it's the idea of this kind of official business that God is doing. This is his official plan. This is his uh, dispensation, what he's doing now in history. And we get, it's the, the word is oikonomia, so we get the word, if you can kind of hear the similarity, we get the word economy from that, right? So, so this is his, literally, it's, it's house law. This is how he's going to administrate what he's doing in the universe. This is what God is executing. It's in Jesus. Jesus is the headline. Jesus is the bottom line. All things are summed up in him. He's the head of all things. All things are united in him. The whole fulfillment is in him. If you studied uh, narrative, story, drama, this is something I studied. Um, I, I remember this in junior high because I just thought it was a cool word, but we, we learned this word for kind of the ending of a story where things are tied together you remember that word? I almost used it for kind of my main point here on the slide, but I don't want to offend you by putting French words up there. Um, but it's, it's this French word, denouement, right? That was a joke, really, about the French people. Sorry, French people, if you're here. Um, but it's this word, denouement, means the summing up of all things. It means the, the fulfillment. It means the resolution, right? You're going along a story, there's conflict, there's a climax of the conflict, and then things start to come together. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus is that denouement. He is the fulfillment. He's the summing up together now of all these loose ends. And, and that's our faith. That's our, that's our hope. Our hope is in him as the one that, that sums it all together. Um, I think it's really important that we reflect this in our own life, um, that we don't just give easy answers and simple answers, because the struggle that we live in is, is that we see, we see this resolution, right? We see this fulfillment in Christ, but we long for it to be completely wrapped up. It's like we're in the middle of, of things being wrapped up right now. The, the climax is, is Christ dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead. And the denouement, the resolution has begun and we're living right in it, but it's not complete yet, right? Not all the bows have been tied. So Paul is saying, hope in Jesus, he is the fulfillment. All things are coming together in him and we're a part of the story, right? It's like this 12-hour movie and our life is one second in that movie, and we live in this part, and, and our lives are to reflect the coming together, the fulfilling, the tying together of all the loose ends. And that's hard for us because we live still with ends untied, right? I mean, there are things still left undone. We're, we're still sick, right? We get up every morning and, and we hurt, or we're struggling, or someone we love is struggling. We feel fine, but someone we love is going through horrendous 
pain or, or we're dealing with abuse or, or tough things that we've gone through in the past. And so there are still the loose ends, all these tangled pieces. And Paul is saying as you, as you look to Christ, he is the resolution of those things. He is the tying together of all those pieces. And it's important that we as Christians reflect that in the way that we live, that our lives point to him, not to us. This is so important as Christians that we would begin living in the new way, right? Paul's going to march through Ephesians. He's going to say, live in a new way. Live, live a moral life, right? Don't lie. Be good people. We, we need to be doing those things, but we need to do them in a way where we point people to Christ as the resolution, as the fulfillment of all these things. That we don't say, look at me. I've got it all together. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the resolution. I know how to do things right. No, our hope is in Christ. And so that's why it's so important as Christians that we, should, that we would live a confessional life, that we would live an honest life and a transparent life before people saying, he's my hope. And I'm trying to put away these old habits and I'm trying to walk in newness of life, but I still stumble and I still fail, but, but he's the hope for me. He, he's the only way I'm going to get there. And so often we run to one or the other, right? There's the kind of cynical, ah, it doesn't matter, God's gracious, so I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And, and there's, there's no real holiness and change taking place. Or we go to the other side and we go, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to grip my teeth and I'm going to do it myself. And we do it in such a way where all the glory goes to us in our own flesh and our own strength. Our lives should reflect the denouement, the fulfillment, the resolution, the coming together of all things in Christ. All things are united in him. Things on heaven and things on earth, they're all united in him. He is the hero of the story. Our lives should reflect that. I was thinking about how, how we can do that in a cheap way, right? Like if you ever watched a sh- a show or a movie where there's resolution, but it feels a little, feels a little shallow, right? Sometimes, you know, there, there's kind of two extremes to stories. There's the kind of fairy tale resolution where it comes together too cheaply, too easily. And then there are the stories where it just doesn't resolve at all, right? These postmodern stories where, every, you know, everybody dies and everything's horrible. And you're like, why did I just watch that movie? That was horrible, you know? And, and so our lives should reflect the story and should be that good story. Yeah, there's some messiness, and there's resolution. And our lives should live out both of it. I was thinking of a TV show I used to watch when I was a kid. This was real popular back in the 80s. Anybody ever seen the A-Team? Um, but one of the things that bugged me about the A-Team is it, was, it just became so formulaic, right? It just became kind of cliche if you ever seen it. Um, that there was always this ending scene of, you know, like, I love it when a plan comes together, and everybody's like, ha, 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 and happy and Everything's perfect, and it's just like this laughing scene where they're all laughing at the end. It was like the exact same every week, again and again and again. And it's important that our lives are, are a little more complex, that we don't just look like bumper stickers, right? Uh, and, and that's not going to happen unless we get to know people, unless we're honest with people, unless they see us stumbling and us walking in holiness both. They, they need to see the full arena of our lives. And one of the things we struggle with as Americans is we have very isolated lives. We live separately from people. So we, you know, we admonish you guys. We say, hey, get in small groups and connect with other people. But, but the bottom line is it's not a program. It's not that we need, you know, 50,000 more people in small group programs. It's that we need people to live more transparent lives. We need to start living in community with other Christians, and we need to start living more honestly uh, before non-Christians so that they see the reality of who we are so that we can begin to, to be real and point people to the fulfillment, to the resolution that we have in Jesus as the one that resolves all things. Well, I don't know what your 
I don't know what you're facing right now. I, I counsel with people during the week, and I, I talk to, you know, I'm friends with many of you. It's, church is too big for me to know every single one of you personally, uh, but I know enough of you to know that you're facing something, that we're all facing something, that to use the, the golf ball analogy, you all feel like you're, you're walking out and, and being hit by golf balls again and again. And you're thinking, man, I just got hit by five. Now another one is, is coming. And I just want to encourage you this morning that the scriptures call us to Jesus. Um, when, when I was riding in the little cart with the cage around me, the golf ball still hit me, right? I mean, they didn't hit my head. They hit the cage, and it was still scary. And it, it would still kind of, you know, it would startle you. Every like, bunk, and you'd kind of jump a little bit every time the golf ball would hit you. So it's not like everything all goes away and everything's just happy and perfect all the time when, when you're in Christ. But that's the only place you're going to be safe. And I want to encourage you this morning that, that he may not immediately fix everything, but, but you're in the middle of that resolution. You're in the middle of that fulfillment. He is tying up the loose ends, and, and you're safe in him. And as we trust in him, we can, along with the rest of creation, long and groan as we wait for the renewal and the perfection of all things, where there will be no more, no more tears, no more crying, and no more pain. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us, and we we thank you that you gave us your son, Jesus, and we pray that you would teach us more and more to trust in all that you have for us in him. Help us to live in him. Help us by faith to trust in the refuge that you've provided for us in him. We pray in Jesus' name.